Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very excited to be talking with Dr. Jill Jarvis today. She is the author of Decolonizing Memory, Algeria and the Politics of Testimony. Jill's book has won multiple prizes, including the Modern Language Association Scaglione Prize for French and Francophone Studies, and a version of one of her chapters won the Ralph Cohen Prize from New Literary History. Thank you for being here today. Dr. Jarvis. Thank you. It's really great to be here. So I wanted to start just by talking about the process of, this is a first book. So the process of turning this book from a dissertation into an award-winning monograph. Well, the process is something like 15 years because this was indeed my dissertation. And the seed of the first chapter that I actually just mentioned started as a term paper, my very first year of graduate school. So it's been a really long process. Um, And I, in graduate school, I studied comparative religion, and I was really interested in North Africa and sort of French colonial history there, and kind of went into graduate school with, I had read Asiya Jabbar, one of the great novelists of Algeria, and it just triggered this desire first to learn Arabic and also to go to Algeria. And so when, when I started graduate school, I started studying Arabic in Morocco first for two years and then finally figured out how to actually get to Algeria, um, which is a complex process logistically. And so once I got there, in when I think I was in my, I don't know, fourth year of graduate school and just sort of framing my dissertation project, um, it sort of transformed some of the work I had been doing, basically. And the dissertation took shape sort of in <laughs> in Algeria. Um, and I was really interested in the sort of the ways that literature worked to create spaces for memory of the the revolution and memory of colonization sort of in contemporary Algeria. So I wrote this dissertation on the, they had a different title. It was called Absent Witness, The Politics of Fiction in the Post-Colony, completely different project. Um, But I sort of, and um, sorry. Yeah, it was a completely different project as a dissertation, right? Um, And sort of laid it out, finished it up, and then um, just continued to work through it and transform it through the last six years of um, being faculty. And it just sort of turned inside out, basically. And pieces that were sort of there from the very beginning got rearranged and transformed and um, articulated as a book project around the sort of poetics of the genre of testimony and the ways that Algeria's writers have really experimented with and transformed that genre um, to grapple with state violence in various forms. So, I mean, I could go into a lot of details about the process if you'd like to know more. 
Um, but it was well, one thing I think that might that, that that listeners might find interesting is you mentioned that it was a complex process, sort of logistically, to get to Algeria. So mm-hmm. I think we might be interested in hearing about that. But I'm also wonder if you could say a bit more about the kinds of on the ground research you did while you were there, mm-hmm. and what kinds of kind of archival research, um, historical. Um, genealogy, how that plays a role in literary scholarship. I think that that's not something we often think of literary scholars as doing field work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk a bit first about, again, just the logistics of getting to Algeria, and then about the nature of your field work and archival work there for this project. Sure, thank you. Um, yeah, logistically, I mean, Algeria in the 1990s was sort of completely closed its borders for what's called a civil war. I mean, I call it a sort of distinctly uncivil war in which the government and um, different groups are sort of waging war on civilians. And so the infrastructure for travel in Algeria is completely different than other places in North Africa, like Morocco and Tunisia, where there's tourist infrastructures and they haven't been ravaged by sort of 10 years of government more or less shut down during civil war. Um, And so in the early 2000s and 2010s, it became possible for researchers to go to Algeria again. They opened the borders, they opened archives, Um, but there was no sort of like direct, uh, you couldn't just go as a tourist. First of all, you'd had to get a research visa and also have a research institute there sponsor you and kind of like connect into a network. But I didn't know how to do that. Um, So it took some time to figure that out. It took some time to get a visa. And I didn't know a lot of people who'd been there, right? So it was a real um, sort of unknown scene. But once there, there was this incredible research center that was sort of uh, this ecumenical, it was hosted by the Catholic Church, but people came from all over Algeria, from different countries in Africa, from Europe, and from the U.S. to stay there in this residence, basically, and to kind of created this hub. It's called Legally Scene. So anyone who works in Algeria knows this place and connects with this place. So once I got connected into that network, it was easier to then go back and continue research and also get to know people and get to know institutions and how to do work on the ground there. And I, you know, I sort of, as I was just loosely narrating the process of dissertation to book earlier, I said being in Algeria totally transformed the work I had done. And it did like qualitatively absolutely changed what I was able to do in terms of close reading and thinking about what like literary works are doing as sort of in networks of people reading, writing, translating, and sharing them. So just being on the ground, like being in Algeria doing field work meant, um, it was not systematic. What it meant was getting to know people, like meeting translators, meeting writers, talking to them, um, learning from them about their relationships, and like, you know, going to literary events. So I would go to you know, there were, there were things hosted, there was a book fair, I would get to know the the bookstores in town. And also more, um, I mean, qualitatively, like in the sense of getting a sense for actual places, for the city of Algiers, for the ways things um, fit together, the ways that places have histories, and those histories have been literary histories, like so many of Algeria's writers have written about the city of Algiers, or have written about the city of Constantine, which is just riven by these gorges, and like the way that history is sort of embedded into the architecture of the cities was something I was really interested in. And that kind of thing just like comes from being there in place. So I did a number of different things, but it was more like sort of entering into a a network and getting to know people, right? Um, I can tell more particular stories about one of the chapters, the way it unfolded, if you want to hear. Well, well, we're going to dive into into the book proper, but I still have some sort of framing questions that I think might be useful for listeners who don't know a lot about Algeria, who don't know a lot about its history or its literature or its culture. Um, And so one of the questions I wanted to ask is just thinking about your title. It's called Decolonizing Memory, Algeria and the Politics of Testimony. And I wanted to sit with that with that that word decolonizing for a bit, just because, you know, decolonization is a popular word that's bandied about quite a bit right now. And so I wonder if you could tell us what that word means to you in the context, both of your project and in the kind of conceptual work that you are observing um, in the literature that you study. Yeah. Um, 
That is a good question. And especially like, I sort of got myself into that with the title because it's decolonizing and decolonial become such important sort of key terms. Um, and in the context of Algeria, I mean, this is a constant, like decolonization is like definitely not a metaphor, right? In the, I mean, just speaking of, you know, like um, Tuck and Yang's essay, it's not a metaphor and it's not a process that's finished. It's not in the past, it has yet to happen. But in the context of Algeria, that's a very, in a very real sense, like quite recently, a profoundly important historical, like decolonizing war was waged for eight years. It was the longest decolonizing war of the 20th century. It ended 130 years of forcible and violent occupation by the French. Um, and the narrative of that decolonizing war and sort of that process of decolonizing has profoundly shaped both French and Algerian politics, literature, cultural memory, right? So there's there's a very sort of historical sense that I think about decolonizing, and it's also connected into whole networks of scholarship about that particular decolonizing process, right? And there's a lot of scholarship concerning like the ways that French experiences of decolonization really shaped, um, you know, not just literature, cultural memory, but also philosophy, post-structuralism, um, the sort of protests of May 1968. Like those are all connected to the Algerian decolonizing struggle in some way. So it's just this tremendously important historical, political, theoretical event, basically. Um, and on the Algerian side, which is I'm actually what I'm much more interested in, right? I'm not, there's, there's so much scholarship actually about sort of French memory of experiences of disavowal of, um, Algeria's decolonization. I'm interested in, in this book in really thinking through the implications of decolonization from, you know, Algerian sort of centered perspectives and there the narrative of decolonization, right? Of that epic war is the founding epic is the founding narrative of the Algerian nation state, right? So it's like the, the sort of subtext for um, all official discourse in Algeria. And then the way that writers and journalists and, you know, other scholars like intervene in, in politics currently is deeply connected to how to manipulate and think through narratives of that decolonizing war. Um, so, so it has that very real and bounded historical sense is what I'm saying. Um, and the title also is, I mean, it was a deliberate um, echo of Ngugi Wathiongo's Decolonizing the Mind, which so thinks about the potential and limits in writing in languages that come from European colonization in Africa about sort of cultural decolonization, which is also a, a sort of thread all through my work is about language. What does it mean? that French is now actually deeply an Algerian language in contact with multiple other languages in a really heterogeneous and polyglot place like Algeria. So there, that's a short, long answer. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so my next question is still still kind of, um, we're still not, we're not yet diving into the book, but I'm curious, earlier in our, in our interview, you said you, you referred to uh, the book as sort of being interested in a poetics of testimony, right? But in your title, um, you know, your subtitle to Decolonizing Memory, it says Algeria and the Politics of Testimony. So one of the things I'm interested in is, is sort of the difference between those two things or the confluence between those two things um, in the literature and language of Algeria. And then I'm, the second thing I'm interested in is whether or not um, literature is a distinct form of cultural production that's doing certain kinds of work in Algeria. And if so, why is, why is there no sort of reference to literature in the title? So it's two kind of questions. I'm, I'm curious about, you know, earlier in your sort of description of the project, you say poetics of testimony, but in the title we have politics of testimony. So what's the confluence between those two ways of thinking about, um, how it is you investigate the literature that's a part of this study. And then I'm also interested in, in the centrality of literature. Is what you're observing unique to literature or other forms of um, cultural production in Algeria, say music, say dance, say performance, say visual art? Are they sort of also engaging in various kinds of te testimony or witness? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question and sort of prompting me to think differently 
about what I've done here. But I think in some way the whole book is a way through which I've tried to explore that very relationship. Like how is literary, how is the literary political? What is it, what is, what is the relationship between aesthetics and politics? Um, And I think, so I don't have a sort of clear cut answer. And I think that I could have called it the poetics of testimony, you know, Algeria and the poetics of testimony. But there's also a way in which I'm really interested in how these literary texts experiment with the genre of testimony to create space for justice claims and register violations that really never came to qualify as crime or to be heard as legal complaint within existing juridical frameworks, right? So there is a politics of testimony, a politics of Algerian testimony, um, that so like I'm trying to <laughs> I keep going into the real details of my book because I'm such a close reader that it's hard for me to sort of step back. Well, but feel like, free. But yeah, like, feel free. Like for example, the second chapter is all about um, these legal trials that took place, the different legal trials and sort of activist e- efforts um, to get Algerian testimonies heard during the late 1950s and 1960s. So like at the time that the Algerian Revolution is underway. Um, and and so they're like grappling with how to get the French public, how to get the French um, legal system to actually hear what Algerians are experiencing, right? After you know basically 130 years of genocidal occupation, and it's and so I mean it's it's a directly political activity. There are activists and lawyers, Giselle Halimi, Simone de Beauvoir get involved in this, right? So mm-hmm. a real politics of trying to create um, basically discursive space to get Algerian testimonies and experiences heard in mm-hmm. uh, in the French public. So I'm also sort of thinking about literature as a supplement to those kinds of efforts, as a supplement to or an alternative to the kinds of legal, legal efforts that they made. Um, and yeah, so that's, I don't know, the, the, some of the ways in which the literary can kind of intervene, supplement, do something different than those activist efforts to kind of collect and display testimony. Um, if that's gets yeah, at that's it. That's great. And I, I just wanted to add, like, I think I, I mentioned that I'm a super close reader and I think this whole text is really sort of closely connected to readings, <laughs> close literary readings, and that literature itself sort of um, I mean, I start with this quote from Spivak that it's not evidence, but an instrument for imaginative training. And the, it's a way in which the aesthetics actually aesthetics actually um, intervene at that level of imaginative training that then is the groundwork for anything political. Um, so I'll stop there. Okay. Okay. Mm. Well, why don't we, with that, why don't we turn to chapter one? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, let's turn to chapter one. So chapter one is entitled Remnants of Muslims. And there you sort of take on uh, Giorgio Agamben I do. Uh, and his use of the term Musulman. Mm-hmm. Am I saying it correctly? Okay, Musulman. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of juxtapose him to sort of Algerian writers who take up that same word that's used differently in an Algerian context to challenge both some of his sort of theoretical precepts um, and sort of various state structures and state violence that um, they're up against themselves, the Algerian writers. And so I wonder if you could sort of walk us through sort of Agamben's sort of use of Musulman um, and then maybe talk about these these books. Yeah, thanks. Um, that is a complex chapter. And this is, you know, when I think of the book, I think of this sort of, it's like almost archaeological when I go through the layers to the, the deepest layer in a sense, that piece on Agamben was the very first thing I wrote that eventually became a dissertation, became a book. And I want to kind of narrate that story. (laughs) Um, But so, but first I'll say, and people might not know this, right, that Algeria under these, I mean, 130 years of French occupation was also ground zero for a uniquely strange juridical regime um, in which the French really experimented with uh, practice, legal practices they would use elsewhere. And this is like where ideas of citizenship got developed. But um, the Algérie Française, French Algeria, was founded on a legal distinction that was drawn between French citizen and a non-citizen subject called sujet that was then either Musulman sujet or 
Israelite sujet, right? So it was either a Muslim or a Jewish subject, right? And so that distinction between citizen and subject, like th- those distinctions evolved over time, but this category of a Muslim subject um, was basic, was like the basis for all kinds of exclusionary laws and basically set the stage for um I mean, genocide is the best way to put it, right? So I just want to say that, right? So I had all of this in my mind, right? So, and this this sort of legal order of French Algeria based on something called Musulman subject. So there I was. Um, <laughs> I, it was actually my first year of graduate school. Somebody put, I, I sort of, for the first time, encountered Agamben's text, Remnants of Auschwitz. And in that book, he takes up a term from Primo Levi, who survived the camps, right, and recalls this, the, like the horrific jargon of the camps, in which there are these hierarchies, and the, those at the very bottom of the hierarchy of the camps, the prisoners um, who have been so destroyed that they're basically just the walking dead; they're no longer living, but they're still alive. Um, got the epithet Musulman, right? That's what people refer to them as in the camps. And this term has sort of, I mean, like if you talk to Israelis, I was I was just talking with Ariela Azule last week about this chapter. And she said, yeah, growing up in Israel, like you just know the term Musulman, it's it's those people in the camps, right? It's sort of become sedimented as a term. Um, and Agamben picks this up and like transforms it into kind of theoretical uh, master figure for thinking about bare life. This is part of his homo soccer project um, as sort of the ex- most extreme example of the power of the state to destroy the human, basically. And um, in this particular book, Remnants of Auschwitz, the witness and the archive, he's thinking about this in terms of a pro- the sort of problem for testimony. He's thinking about the like paradox of witnessing in the 20th century and something radically new has happened in the world, which is that the Nazis created these Musulman um, through extreme state violence. And the paradox of witnessing that he's so interested in that book is that those who actually therefore witnessed the most extreme forms of state violence cannot testify, right? Like categorically, they have been so destroyed, they cannot speak. There's, there's no one there to speak, right? And so he's thinking about this. He's thinking about the Eichmann trial, like like those who can actually stand trial and talk about the crimes of the Nazis. They didn't actually experience the true horror. So he's like elaborating all of this in this book. And I read this my first year of graduate school, and I was like, I read it in a course, so we were talking about it in a course. And I was like, does anyone else not think it's super weird that the name is Muslim, you know? And for thinking through this, and he just... Agamben never addresses the colonial resonance, the the like uh, sort of like the vast colonial legal infrastructures that also draw on this term Musliman. He doesn't think about Algeria. And since that was so foreground on my mind, I, I just became obsessed basically with this over this this um, blindness and deafness on his part to the other resonances of that term. And so well, let me interrupt you for just a second, because I want to. <laughs> One, I know the response to this question is going to be quite long, thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, how these then Algerian writers respond to, to this term and its circulation mm-hmm. um, beyond Algeria, especially. Um, but I'm curious in that seminar where you were like, hey, what do other people think about about this term? What was the response? It was interesting. It was my first semester and I took this course. It was with Cornell West and Jeff Stout in the religion department. And it was this long table. There were like 20 people in it, many of them theologians, like from the theological seminary. And um, I should clarify, we were reading a book by Adriana Cavarero called Horrorism, in which she was quoting Agamben so, and, and picking up that term Musulman. And, she, and I was like, does anyone else not find this strange? But it, I don't know, just sort of like... It moved on. It never got picked up. So there was a kind of silence even in the seminar. And I felt really awkward and strange about it, but also just stayed so irritated <laughs> that I kept coming back to it. But it didn't get picked up for conversation. There was like someone sort of you know, shrugged and we moved on to talking about um, the argument of the text rather than this side point that I was bringing in. Um, and that side point became you know, a whole essay. And I actually finished writing that essay when I was in Algiers. Um, and it just, it brought so much clarity, just like talking to people there about it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So we can return to, to the Agamben, but I didn't want to lose that, 
things. That thread. I wanted to know what happened in that classroom. Mm -hmm. We were talking um, still about sort of Agamben's blindness to how Muslim as a as a as a term had circulated in colonial and legal structures, despite his sort of attempt to to use it as a as a foundation for theorizing bare life and the impossibility of testimony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just was struck, like, Agamben's pointing out all these paradoxes and ironies, and I was just struck by the the ironies of, of all of his oversights. And so I sort of, like, write, wrote sort of a scathing indictment, really, of that theoretical appropriation of the term that ignores the colonial valences. I mean, it's a kind of untranslatable term that circulates and has multiple meanings, and it had very distinct meanings in colonial Algeria that resonate with the kinds of like destruction of the human by state violence that he's trying to talk about, right? But he totally ignores colonial violence. So that piece actually sat still for a long time. Like it was just about Agamben and I didn't know how it fit into the book. I didn't know how this fit into a book about Algerian literature. And it, until I encountered work by the writer Zahia Rahmani, who I met actually like after I had finished the dissertation, it was when I had already started working at Yale. I invited her here to speak, um, and because I, I had heard of her work, and I read her novel, and it's called Musulman Roman, which is like Muslim, a novel. And the word Musulman is in quotation marks in the title, like has you know Guillaume. And I read the text, and I was like, she. This is a citation. Like it's not the word. She's actually like doing work on Agamben in this literary text. Um, and so I talked to her about that. We had all of these conversations. I read her works and in her works, I mean, so her work, it's fiction, sort of her auto fiction. It's like, we'll talk about the genre. I mean, it's this incredibly theoretical and interesting trilogy of texts. And it's the only work I have found that like directly implicitly, but it's pretty clearly an intertext, like implicitly redresses Agamben's consequential blind spot. Um, she envisions the repressed history of French colonial occupation in Algeria. Her own father was what's called a Harki, which is um, uh, an Algerian who fought as a French soldier, right? So he worked for the French. And this is this is a history, you know, there's a huge, there's a long history facilitated by the legal status of the Muslim subject, that the French conscripted Algerians and other Africans, but Algerians in particular, into their armies to fight on their behalf, right? Um, so she, like, is personally connected to this history, and she was basically, in one of these novels of the three, she stages a trial of the French state for creating this army of ghosts called Musulman, um, and you know, kind of like excoriates the French state. And then in another one, she, in another novel, she sort of rewrites these camp scenes from a desert camp. And the way that she stages these scenes and articulates these scenes, you can tell that she, the images are coming from or revising images that Agamben was creating when he was talking about the camp as the nomos of the modern and the place where the Muslim subject or the Muslim figure of bare life was created. So I don't know, like I just found it, totally amazing that she took this on in this way fictionally or in a literary way and so that's that completed the arc of this chapter but also let me think a lot about the ways that literary works actually intervene theoretically if that makes sense um so (laughs) that that's the first chapter yeah no that makes a lot of sense well you've already told us a bit about your second chapter which is entitled untranslatable justice but i wonder if you could tell us more about testimony about sort of acts of censorship and um how it is that sort of anti-colonial activists and sort of others um acted to fight against those 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 efforts um in both french and algerian society Hmm. yes um Mm-hmm. So the first chapter is, you know, you're giving us a sort of framework for thinking about one of the ways that sort of theorists and others, people outside of Algeria have circulated this term, um, which actually still affects the sort of lived experience of people colonized in Algeria. And then your second, you're thinking about the actual um, status of Algerian testimony. And so 
I wonder if you could just sort of tell us about that, maybe the connections between the first and second chapters, but also the work of some of these sort of French anti-colonial um, activists. Yeah, I will. Yeah, so as you know, so as, as you've noted, the second chapter is organized around a series, a series of different testimonial activist texts, all came out 1959, 1960, 1961, right? So this is the last years of Algeria's decolonizing war, and it was like hallucinatory violence. I mean, the kinds of torture and um, extrajudicial killings that were going on, but carried out by the French in Algeria were off the charts. Um, And this is the same time, and this is the sort of link, the thread from the previous chapter, like literally the same time, 1961, the Eichmann trial is underway in Jerusalem. Social demand for Holocaust survivor testimonies is growing in France. Right. And so like testimony of the Shoah is sort of coming um, into public, is circulating on televisions. Right. I mean, it's like really coming into uh, public awareness and consumption in France Um, at the same moment that the Algerian Liberation War is escalating. And Algerian testimonies are, are not being heard on that level. And this is like this is an irony that these activists pick up on. Right. So um, it in particular, the chapters interested in this case of, of an Algerian anti-colonial militant named Jamila Bupasha, who was, she was like 21 years old, um, and she was working for the FLN, and she was accused by the French of planting a bomb. Sorry, can you, can you break down FLN for our listeners, Sorry. please? <laughs> the, the National Liberation Front, right, the, the group that was running the anti-colonial war in Algeria, the guerrilla group, basically, in Algeria. Um, thanks for that reminder. Right, so she was a part of the FLN, and she was arrested by the French. She was put in prison, and she was accused of planting a bomb in a cafe in Algiers and sentenced to death, right? And she wrote to this lawyer, Giselle Halimi, who worked for the FLN, um, a Tunisian-French lawyer. She's, she died recently. She's very famous. Um, and she said, please help me. I am accused of death. Uh, like I'm under death penalty and um, I didn't do it. They extracted my testimony from me under torture. I've been tortured and raped and I need your help. And Giselle Halimi like got on a plane. She went to Algiers. She had 24 hours or something like that was all they would give her access. She saw Jamila Bupasha in prison and she was like, I will take your case. And I am going to not only, and so Jamila Bupasha became this like symbol for the activist efforts, basically, and for the anti-colonial effort, um, but also this case, this impossible case that they they could not get her tr- her case actually heard in court. But Giselle Halimi, this lawyer, she enlisted Simone de Beauvoir. She enlisted like Picasso drew a picture of of Bupasha, right? I mean, all of the most famous French intellectuals signed on to this project, basically to get Bupasha a hearing in court where she could accuse her torturers um, and where she could get like her death sentence commuted, basically. It stretched on for something like, what was this, 1962 years um, and failed. Like they failed to get her in court. The rationality and coherence of French legal operations totally break down. In, and this, this is what the text kind of shows that no justice can be done, right? But I was really interested in this text, which is an activist text. Basically, they published this whole document. It has all of these dossiers from the trial. It has this long narrative written by the lawyer. They published it to put pressure on the French state, like to publicize the atrocity, basically, um, in order to create a scandal if they couldn't get a hearing. Um, And then the whole thing ended because the war ended, Right. So in 1962, with the Evian Accords and independence, all of the torturers and any all the prisoners were basically acquitted and never brought to trial. Right. So that was part of the agreement. So so justice was never done, basically. But Bupasha was saved from death because of this. So that's just one of the cases I look at. But what I'm interested there is like. The, the, there's there's a sort of failure in the rationality coherence of the French legal operations, and these texts sort of put pressure on the genre of legal testimony in this way that calls into question the very frameworks of justice that were operating there. And I think the texts, in some way, like they kind of archive and smuggle in these other much bigger 
um, demands for justice that still haven't been met. I mean, none of those things have been addressed in the after the wake of the Algerian anti-colonial war. Um, I mean, I can talk more about the genre of testimony if you'd like to, but. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Well, one of the questions I have is sort of thinking about, you know, before we move to, to chapter three and, and this moment of post-independence in Algeria, I wanted to think about, you know, in chapter one, just returning really quickly to sort of Agamben using the figure of the Musulman to talk about the impossibility of testimony. But then there being this book by an Algerian writer that's sort of challenging that idea, right, that he's sort of engaged in a kind of, um, in an erasure of a kind, right, in the deployment of that term. Um, but then we have this chapter that follows it that is about the actual sort of impossibility where what can speak um, are these sort of French anti-colonial activists and their social capital. And so I just wonder just the movement between those two chapters, how how we should think about that. Um, yeah, no, there's a real tension. And, and I know there's, there's you know, a great deal of time across the novels and, and sort of Agamben's coming up with this phrase. And, and also, you know, circumstances and conditions have changed by the time that um, the novelist in, in, in chapter one is, is writing, changed somewhat. But I'm still, I'm just, I guess I'm just kind of curious, right? Because on one hand, it's like Agamben's insensitive, but he seems to have his finger on something. <laughs> You know, and so I'm curious about that, you know, for like readers who, you know, they pick up your book and they're moving between chapter one and chapter two, we get to chapter two and it's like, well, we know these French anti-colonial activists can speak, but we still have questions about the actual sort of Algerian subjects, especially those who are actually engaged in anti-colonial struggle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good question. And you're, again, sort of picking up on a structural tension in the book or something I wrestled with. Like, uh, how does chapter one then lead to chapter two? Because chapter two was actually originally chapter one. Um, I originally started there when I was turning the dissertation into a a book. Um, and And so there's a real complex relationship. Each chapter, I really see each chapter or I each chapter is in some way its own constellation of works, right? And then they sort of resonate in a sort of system within the chapter. And then there are threads that link them, right? So I think your question is probably going to stay with me beyond this interview. I don't know if I can answer it sufficiently, but there's a way in which – I don't know. The second chapter like really is about the ways that – Algerian testimonies do not fit these narrative frames in which they're made to appear, right? And that there's all of this sort of ghosted material that cannot make it into representational frames that are, you know, standing in as testimony. Uh, And it's that sort of ghosted material or the ways that those testimonial texts nevertheless in their literary qualities um, sort of point to 
the need for other other sort of infrastructures to get those testimonies um, heard that I'm looking into. I don't know if... Well, if I wonder I'm what you think, question, just kind of... Well, I wonder what you think, just kind of quickly, like, mm-hmm. you know, sort of... You said the, the Algerian testimonies cannot be expressed through the narrative frames through which they're made to appear. And then sort of thinking about the Agamben as sort of instituting a narrative frame where despite the fact that he pretends to be um, discovering one, right? And so it's the same kind of move that his move is a, it's kind of imposing a narrative frame that silences, but also makes unavailable certain population sort of testimony, even as he's sort of supposedly naming their lives. So what he's actually doing is instituting it for certain populations while aggrandizing others as sort of being analogous to those populations, which he can still nevertheless silence in that move. So it's kind of a weird move. It's like you're trying to na- name this sort of bare life population, but what you actually do is elevate it. You show them to not be having experienced bare life because there's still this other population who, who that narrative frame can absolutely silence and make unavailable to us. Yeah, and the ways in which a, a kind of naming or a kind of making visible is also at the same time an erasure. Yeah. Uh, and then that's, and is what is, I found so the tension and sort of problematics of those activist texts, right? right. For all of the effort to try to make visible, um, it, it comes with this demand of translatability, first of all, like to make the Algerians mm. legible to French readers um, and all of the erasure that that entails. Um, you know, and like even just looking at Picasso's portrait of Jamila Bupasha as a kind of metaphor for that process, like he draws this picture of her on the cover of that book. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a very simple line drawing that sort of obsessively focuses on her eyes and it sort of, mm. you know, it just distills everything down to a few simple lines. <laughs> um, and in some ways, that's the, the kind of testimonial framework in which that text is operating. Um but there's all of this excess in the text as well. Um, things that make it through that. So it's, it's that sort of like the slippery excess that I was mm-hmm. particularly interested there. Um, mm-hmm. The other languages, like the, her father's voice speaking in a kind of translated French uh, about his experiences in prison. Um, and, the way in which every one person who's interviewed refers to, you know, hundreds and thousands of other people who've experienced similar things, right? It just sort of like radically expands the frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, but just, you know, due to time, yeah, I want us to, I do want us to move. Move along. Um, yeah. So chapter three is morning revolt. And this is morning for listeners with the U-R-N, right? Um, and it's set in the time and space of post-independence Algeria. And so you say there that you're exploring a model of spectral justice that is oriented by a literary perspective. And so I wonder what you what you mean by that. And if you could, if you could tell us a bit um, about this chapter and the work that it's doing. Yes. So... In some way, this is the move away from the frustrations that we were just talking about of the first chapters, right? And the, and it's also a real direct move away from the ways that scholarship on Al- Algerian um, decolonization has been done, which is largely through a sort of French-centered frame. Um, and so like French sort of memory, testimony, trauma studies that thinks about Algerian um anti-colonial movement, Algerian decolonization tends to do so um, with materials that either are written by or written for people who live in the metropole, who live in France. Um, and and so the questions get shaped in certain ways. Um, and like even the horror about revelations about French torturing people in Algeria, right? That was a scandal in France. And there's a lot of literature around that and the sort of revelations of how horrible it was. And you still see French government like grappling and French public grappling with those realities, right? All of these projects on memory. So this chapter is sort of the center of the book and it's where it shifts decisively to post-independence Algeria and to questions to networks, to writers who are really thinking in that space. Um, so just sort of architecturally in the book. And it centers around two novels, the only two novels written by an obscure recluse named Yamina Meshakra, who was 
um, she was a writer, but she was also a medical doctor and a psychiatrist. And um, she, these, these texts have been not, they've not been translated and they haven't been published outside of Algeria. They're starting to be known outside of Algeria, but largely, you know, when I wrote this, they weren't. Um, and they're called La Grotte Eclatée, The Exploded Cave, and Aris, which is just a proper name. Um, they were written 20 years apart. They are absolutely incandescent works. Like I first picked up the novel and I just felt like, just like the language is so intensely striking and singular in this way that I, you know, rarely experience. So in some ways, the, go ahead. Is this, is this only in the French or in the, in the translation as well? It hasn't been translated. Oh, Oh, man. Um, and I'm, I have several students who are obsessed with it and trying to like working on translations. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, well, just because you're telling readers or excuse me, listeners about, about these books that they will never get to read. Likely. Well, there are many languages. And, and I do think Yamina Meshakra should be translated. Absolutely. I mean, and, and so, I mean, I just hope people actually just read this because it's hard to do justice. You can't summarize poetry, right. And the, 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 the language of the, I call it a novel. It's not really, you know, it's like um, Kateb Yassin, who is one of the great Algerian writers, wrote the preface and he called it, an, a, what did, how did he put it? It's not a novel. It's poetry that can be read. It's like verse that can be read as prose, but it's basically, it's basically poetry. Um, okay. This is a, I absolutely love Yamina Meshakra. This is the heart of the text. And I felt really quite genuinely haunted by her presence when I was in Algeria because she had just died the week before. And so I was encountering people who knew her. I happened to have her book with me and one of her, like someone saw it and said, how do you know her? And said, like, she's basically, she was my godmother. And he took me to see his father who had been her mentor and was the head of psychiatry at the psychiatric hospital in Algiers. And I spent like three hours in his office getting a tour of the psychiatric hospital where Yamina Meshakra had worked and where she also was treated as a patient. She had a lot of mental health struggles and like, you know, and just like this outpouring of his experience with her. Basically that's how the research unfolded, but her work is there's a word bouleversant. It's just like it, it knocks you over. And this particular novel, and I'll just say this briefly about um, La Grotte Eclatée, it, it, when you start to read it, it feels like you're reading a diary of a soldier, who, like a woman who has been conscripted or volunteered to become a medic in the FLN, the revolution you know, the Revolutionary Front. And she's in a cave in the mountains hiding with her comrades and um, tending to their wounds and basically like in the middle of war. That's the setting. But the thing comes totally unraveled when there, there's a bomb that strikes the cave. She loses her mind. And the whole thing becomes this sort of like poetic lamentation um, that is not just about the horrors of war, but that just sort of like evokes Algerian history in this incredibly deep way. So what it's doing and this is sort of the argument in the book, is reconfiguring the national epic, right? Which is the narrative of the revolution and like soldier testimony and the, the heroes of the war, just like, it's like a monumentalized genre in Algeria. She's taking that genre of the first person uh, Mujahida soldier testimony and transforming it into a kind of open-ended lamentation and act of mourning for all of those lives lost to not just the revolution, but... Um, all of those lives that have been cut out of the national narrative, basically since independence. So Algeria's sort of national narrative, and this is enshrined in the constitution, is that Algerians are Muslim and they speak Arabic and they are united behind the government, which is now led by the FLN, right? So that same revolutionary party became the ruling government since independence. So her novel just like, goes to work basically on that epic and undoes it from within. And that's what in close reading that chapter really explores. And that's what I meant by a model of spectral justice or what it means to sort of um, claim kinship with the heterogeneous and plural reality of Algerian lives that don't really fit into the forms of national discourse that are operating there today.
if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it does. It does. I'm maybe lamenting that I won't be able to read that book likely. Well, uh, for I, some time. I'm working on, I've, I have a student who's translated to like half of it. I could send you that. <laughs> oh, oh. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's, let's move on to, to chapter four, um, which is open elegy. Um, and there you're sort of interested uh, in sort of just ongoing sort of conflict in the 1990s in Algeria and the ways that sort of different writers um, across different languages are taking up some of that activity. And so I wonder if you could tell us a bit still about conflict in post-colonial Algeria and then about the sort of different languages that that folks are taking up those conflicts in and, and then trying to intervene um, through. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for this tour through my book. It's helping me revisit the, <laughs> the all of the paths. Um, This novel centers around, this novel, this chapter centers around an Arabic language novel by a writer named Wassini Larhej. Um, And, which has been translated into French. It's funny, I found out about this novel because I was talking to this old priest who had been friends with, and sort of a mentor to Yamina Meshakra, the novelist I just talked about. Um, so I was talking to this old priest who also was one of the great translators in Algeria of Arabic into French. And I asked him, like, what is your favorite work that you've translated? And he said, this novel um, by Wassili Larej, right? And that's that's how I actually came to, uh, so t- like the organic connections between these chapters or work in those ways. So I was working on Yamina Meshakra. I learned about this novel in Arabic by Wassili Larej that Marcel Bois had translated. Um, and it's, so I read it in, um, I, I read Arabic not fluently and well, so I read it with French, like his French translation and also the Arabic. Um, and it is, this chapter really does move into um, the, the sort of implications of state violence in 1990s Algeria. So, Colloquially and commonly, what like the Algerian civil war is often framed as, um, oh, the there were elections in 1991, and um, Islamist parties challenged the state basically, and actually won the election. Like an Islamist party won the election, and the state was super threatened, um, and that sort of broke into all-out war with terrorists, Islamist terrorists, fighting against the state and killing lots of civilians, right? And so it's framed as the, the, the years of terror. Um, and it's and then the government's narrative about those years is that everything needed to be done in the interest of national security. We need to fight terror. And this, of course, plays right into the discourse of the war, the war on terror in the early 2000s, right? And so I'm really interested in thinking in other ways about that violence. And this novel also, I think, gives a way to think in other ways about that violence. So it is set on a single day um, in 1988. So before that war began, but as those tensions were sort of building. Um, And it's written in Arabic. And it... (laughs) The subtitle of the book in Arabic, Martiyat al-Yumahazin, is like the elegies for that very sad day, for that sorrowful day, right? So the novel is a kind of, it's very long, but it's set on one day and it's elegiac in this way. And if you read between the lines, right, the, the, the violence at stake, like, so the, the narrator's lover has been killed. She's been shot in the head and she's like dies of a, having a brain, you know, a brain, death because of her being shot in the head, but you never know who actually shot her. Um, and it turns out that the, like the implications is that the security forces actually shot her, not the terrorists, right? Just in short, um, that's the like narrative frame of the story. But the narrative frame of the story also operates something like the narrative frame of the Thousand and One Nights, where you have, you know, like myriad stories sort of appearing <laughs> night by night by night, right? So it like the text sort of opens up as this, that, 
like that's why I call it open elegy, right? It's like this compendium, this archive of myriad elegies, complaints, and stories. It's written in Arabic, but it also draws on materials from French and this autobiography of a woman who is Kabyle, right? Her first language is Kabyle, one of the indigenous languages in Algeria. So I was really interested in the poetics, like the multilingual poetics of this text and things being translated into and out of Arabic and French to break down this whole idea the sort of dominant idea about the 1990s in Algeria, that it's like Islamist Arabic speaking terrorists against rational (laughs) uh, state that's affiliated with uh, like French rationality and government. Right. And that Arabic and French are somehow in direct conflict with each other in Algeria. It's just not that simple. And this novel creates a texture for thinking about how it's not that simple, how that narrative is actually playing into the interests of the Algerian state um, and the interests of sort of carrying out all kinds of acts of violence in the name of fighting terror, which is exactly what they did, right? They rounded up anybody they called deemed terrorists and detained them, tortured them, and shipped them off to camps in the Sahara, like disappeared them, right? Um, and so the elegy and the elegiac qualities in that novel, I think, also call all of those state crimes into the picture. This is also why it's hard for me to get visas to Algeria, probably. Um, <laughs> since um, Yeah. Um, well, just sort of thinking about, you know, all this sort of intertext for this final chapter, I'm curious whether or not, I mean, obviously they don't make it into this project, but I'm curious about whether or not sort of Algeria is a kind of singular or exceptional case in French colonial history. And there are reasons that you've mentioned already in this uh, interview why that might be the case. And if not, I'm curious about whether or not sort of Algerian writers are ever looking elsewhere to, to former colonies, to, um, yeah, for, for inspiration, for guidance, for method, for, you know, what have you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yes. So, like the sort of intertextual relations or the kinds of things they're reading and thinking about. Uh, I mean, yes, absolutely. There's sort of trans-colonial connections. Like Algeria's, Algiers itself during the 1960s was sort of like a hub for different kinds of revolutionary movements. The Black Panthers were in Algiers. Like revolutionaries from all across Africa were coming to Algiers. So there's those sorts of, you know, linkages. But in terms of writers, absolutely. I mean, they're reading francophone writers. I mean, M.A. Césaire, Franz Fanon is like in Algeria, but they're also reading, you know, Senegalese writers and writers from elsewhere and contemporary writers who also, like Samir Negrouche, for instance, the poet I write about in the conclusion, right? I mean, she's reading poets and writers from all across the continent, from the U.S. Um, well, I guess a better way of asking my question might just be like, what to the national frame uh, in the okay. book, so even or even the work of nation in mm. your book? Um, I wonder if we could think about that. Oh, that's an interesting. Yeah, because I mean, you know, obviously people read folks from from. All, I mean, Algeria is not that big, <laughs> but I'm curious about yeah, just just the work of, of of nation. And I'm I'm not someone who's like who doesn't think that it's a useful concept. I mean, quite obviously. Um, but I'm just curious about it. It seems like a curious thing, right? Because this is very much a text that almost seems to operate and move back and forth between, you know, the metropole and, well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, yes. It's a book, I guess, that's interested in state violence, which is often organized in terms of nation states and national frames. Um, and, it's also true that like the French imperial nation state, <laughs> um, you know, had distinctive practices and that Al- the Algerian colony was, it's not you sort of, you know, I don't want to singularize it in terms of like, it was so much worse than shit, you know, it, all of the other parts of the French imperial nation state. Um, but, but there was something very, um, like the the very fact that French colonization in Algeria legally turned Algeria into the French nation, that's unique, 
right? So there's a national framework. So there's a national framework around the idea of Algérie Française that says Algeri- Algeria is France. Legally, it was, right? And so all of these writers are sort of working within that, extra- that, that frame of state violence that says Algeria is actually France. So I think that the national frame then like I go to Algeria is because it's still grappling with that legacy in some ways. Yeah. Um, no, and it's useful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just don't know the history that as well as, as yeah. you do quite obviously. And so I was, I was curious about that because it seems to me that, yeah, I was just curious about that. And part of that's disciplinary, you know, it's just right. like trying to operate in us Academy and like have a coherent mm-hmm. project. Um, no, but enough, I, yeah. I, felt, I found that the, the work itself kept pushing me outside of the national frame. So, mm. well, I mean, you've already gestured to this, but but I want to close by talking about your conclusion mm-hmm. um, and both the novelist and poet that you explore there. Yes, um, tell us about prisons without walls. Uh, yes, I wrote this conclusion. I've had a different conclusion that I scrapped. Um, it wasn't right, and then it was it was winter of twenty nineteen. January 2019, um, when I was starting to figure out how to write a conclusion. And at this time, um, I was talking to this poet, Samira Negrush, who I'd been friends with for years. I hadn't been writing about her work, but I was talking to her about some of her work. And we were on Skype. This is like before Zoom. I was here in New Haven. She was in Algiers. I couldn't get a visa to go to Algeria. So that's why we were on Skype. And she was like, something is happening. Something is happening. I can feel something happening. People are, you know, and the the president was about to go up for his fifth term, Abdulaziz Bouteflika, and so this was like the week before these massive uprisings began that called the Hirak, the movement um, that racked like every week. Then from January twenty nineteen, every week for a year. These thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people were going out in the streets of Algeria's cities to call for the ouster of the president, right? And this massive uprising called the Hirak. And that just really changed, it changed what I was able to write. It was, it changed how I was thinking about um, the whole project. And so the conclusion um, was thinking about the things I was hearing and seeing from a distance, um, about in the Hirak, that movement to confront the government for its crimes, basically. Um, and I focus on the work of Samira Negrush in that chapter, along with some of the later works by Asiya Jebar, who's a novelist, actually, who I first read, who got me interested in Algeria to begin with, um, in which, like, it points forward to sort of what from here and the kinds of visions that. Um, that come through Samira Negrush's and Asiya Jabbar's reckoning with the ghosts and sort of unsolved um, losses and crimes and disappearances of the 1990s, uh, which, and I think that that was, that's also what people on the streets were dealing with in 2019. Like the president who had claimed to put an end to the violence of the 1990s, he was still in power. His government was responsible for all of these, all of this repression. So they're calling for his end. And so it was just a way for me to reflect on that very moment of the Hirak and the total uncertainty of what was going to come after that. And what has come since then has been really grim, honestly. And then COVID struck at pretty much the moment I turned the manuscript in. <laughs> um, so that's, but it just really, and that's why like the last line is something like the future is far from certain, I think is my last sentence uh, as I reflected on all of that. And what is, a, you know, the, the politics of all of this sort of grappling with testimony and trying to call the state to account? Like, where does this, where does this lead? And there was a moment of optimism and real joy during that movement uh, that since has become extremely attenuated. <laughs> well, my final question is just, did you share this book, the, the finished product with some of the people that you met while you were on the ground in Algeria, the writers, the translators, the friends and family? I have. Um, many of the people have died, actually, since like some of the people were either quite old or um have died since but like Samira for instance the poet I was just talking about that I was talking to at the end and write about work um I sent her 
her drawing is actually on the cover. Um, this design comes from her one of the um, installation pieces that she, like these hand-drawn installations that she did with all of these triangular patterns. It came from her drawing and I sent it to her and she actually just translated the conclusion into French and included it in her book that just came out a few weeks ago. Right. So it's sort of um, had, had some afterlife. And one thing too, is this is something I'm, I feel really mixed or really sad about is that I haven't been able to go to Algeria since I was a graduate student. I've been denied visas routinely. Um, so I finished this book unable to go and I have never had a chance to actually go and and physically hand my copy to, you know, people I'd like to see and talk to about the book with. Maybe one day. Um, but that's been cut off. Well, thank you so much for, for talking with me today. I hope listeners go out and grab a copy of Decolonizing Memory, Algeria and the Politics of Testimony, which is available from Duke University Press. Um, and thank you again for being here today, Dr. Jarvis. Thank you so much for having me and talking to me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.